Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. We are three friends who meet on the internet every other week to discuss what films we've been watching separately. And then we come together and discuss one that gets us on topic on the same page. Sometimes we talk about current events at the top of the episode. Sometimes we don't. Going to be a little hard not to yeah. reference what's going on in the world this week because we oh watched boy. a movie that's in the Russian language, but based on a Ukrainian folktale, uh, which was not an intentional no, not at all. <laughs> commentary on current events, but you know, things happen. Yeah. But before we get into that, uh, what else have y'all been watching since the last time we talked? Last week, I watched the uh, 2019 BBC sort of production movie thing called Little Joe. Oh, I really liked that movie. I liked it, but it was also a little bit disappointing to me. You know, I liked the whole idea of it being unsettling and kind of just about how the world, like, gaslights women and neurodivergent people into being like, it's fine when things are not fine. But I kind of just wish it had been more brutal, I guess. We should describe what the premise is because it does have a good yeah, hook. Yeah, it does have a really good hook. So basically, there is this company that's like a corporate plant breeding company. And two of the scientists there have engineered a plant that makes people happy by taking care of it. The science is iffy as well. That's, that's <laughs> the other thing I should say. So don't don't go into it. Don't go into it expecting to be like, oh yes, this is scientifically sound because it's not. <laughs> it, like even hearing them talk about the science, you're like, this is a terrible idea. I, I thought it was really fun as like a pandemic movie by accident. Yeah. Like, everyone has to wear masks around these plants, and uh, also there's that period early in the pandemic when everyone was just hoarding houseplants all of a sudden and like yes. pouring all of their mental health work into maintaining these houseplants. Wait, did we stop? I was going to say, Can okay, I stop well, doing this? I'm still doing this. I feel like that was a boom at first. Maybe it slowed down a little bit, but it's probably still happening. I was late on the wave, I guess. I was going to say, <laughs> I have three separate Hoyas and I want more. <laughs> so, gimme. I know there were certain like breeds of plants that like became super expensive all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. They were pretty common... But now they're scarce. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everybody wanted one. This very strange thing happened where many, many years ago, my mother planted. Um, I'm sorry. I will make this a short digression. Yeah, no. She yeah. planted elephant ears sort of along the side of the drainage ditch off of their property where like oh, the my God. sort of treated sewer goes. And they get huge in the They south. get big, but they also don't root. Uh, in fact- tarot root is actually elephant ear root i recently learned oh. like tarot root that you eat that's funny because i thought they were like poisonous i guess just the root isn't just the yeah the the plant itself is toxic to humans and, and many animals but the root itself is, is is it's a root vegetable but it doesn't root like a tree would root so obviously it didn't do much good to sort of stop the progress of erosion in this ditch and then sometime maybe like back in october one of Matt's friends was moving north and they didn't want to move all their house plants, so they brought this elephant ear and he asked me to hang on to it because he was having a gnat problem at the time. And I it died in my care, but I don't think it was going to make it anyway. So I asked my mom when I was home at Thanksgiving, I was like, hey, can you bring 
some elephant ear because they're crazy expensive now as house plants, yeah. even though they're just like, you know, my mom, basically there are all these very expensive house plants that are getting gigantic in a river of my parents' manure essentially yeah so yeah i've got some of those now and i'm like yeah this would be you you have like a thousand dollars out there in the ditch if you yeah. want to go dig it up and try and sell it i but, was gonna say the know. houseplant internet market is booming so i've definitely bought houseplants from people on the internet so i am part of the problem but not really all of my like super popular like ones that are now kind of expensive like just basic monsteras I've gotten from cuttings from other people that have somehow lived through massive neglect. It's really survival of the fittest for my my house plants. <laughs> uh, little Joe, the house, the the plant would never make it in my care. Um, <laughs> it would never make me happy. I would not make it happy. It would both be upset. So yeah, I I kind of liked it. Just reflecting that yeah. shift, like that cultural. Um, I, I want to call it a fad, but uh, apparently it hasn't faded yet. So maybe just a cultural like mutation that we've taken on houseplants as such a like emotional crutch lately. Yeah. And it's a, it's a quietly creepy movie kind of about that. So I appreciated that. I think it's faded among straight people. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. I, I think I, I don't think the rest of us have let go of it quite yet. I, I would say, as with most fads, if I'm getting on board... It's probably the wave has passed. <laughs> if it's if I'm if I'm involved. So the other movie I watched is Dragonwick from 1946. So it's got a uh, young Vincent Price. So you know when he was just like a regular young debonair sort of sinister, and not just like his older spooky sinister. And it's very like gothic sort of plot um basically he's this like dutch new york lord that's basically got a feudal land property in new york shortly after it was not new amsterdam anymore i assume but he also has this poor cousin who lives in Connecticut, he invites her to live at his house and be the caregiver for his child while, like, he and his, like, very spoiled wife, of course, do whatever rich people do. His wife dies mysteriously. He marries the cousin and then is just, like, an absolute asshole. And, you know, of course... I don't know how... This is a movie from 1946, so I'm going to spoil it for y'all. I'm sorry. But it ends up... <laughs> he's poisoned his wife and is planning to poison mm. the cousin. But it's still got that spooky gothic atmosphere. And a, the other really cool part of this is that politically, it kind of gets really awesome. Because all of his tenants are like super part of this like anti-landlord movement. This basically just like throwing a riot and being like, we're Americans. We've paid you rent many times over and this is our land now. And I was like, damn, like, why can't we do this yeah. now? Um, so I'm, I'm into it. You know, it's not the best, but I love those old like gothic stories, man. I don't know. I'm just if I were 
a young woman in the 1800s, these like pulpy gothic novels would be all I read. Obviously, since now I read like a ton of romance novels, it's just like, that's my kind of trash. I need that gothic melodrama and it's so good. Um, I've also finished, <laughs> I've watched all of the new season of Disenchantment and it was great. I don't know if y'all watch that show but is that the matt graining show yeah that's on netflix yeah i thought this season was like really like the animation just like i feel like they really upped it like i it was really good looking i don't know but yes i i really enjoyed that show it's been so long since there was new there were new episodes of it because i feel like the last time i watched it the last time there was an update and i kind of felt like i was giving it one more chance even then personally like not to you know oh no no. but was in like (laughs) the last time i saw you in person brandon like i had it on on that trip in september 2019 when i was back in louisiana uh and was catching up on like that most recent one then and god that's been almost you know it's been two and a half years you would think animation would be the one thing the pandemic would not disrupt. Yeah. She could do most of that isolated. But not not if you don't have, you know, Uncle Walt standing true. there <laughs> tapping, tapping his watch and, and watching over your shoulder. What have you been watching, Boomer? Well, the last thing that I watched actually before we recorded last was I was very fortunate to attend a screening of the Everything is Terrible Kids Club movie. Uh, We previously talked about the Everything is Terrible, the Great Satan, as like a topic on this podcast. And this one, instead of being sort of a narrative about uh, sort of explaining who the devil is, where he came from, what he wants, what he's doing through these clips that Everything is Terrible makes, this one was more about the journey from non-existence to birth to childhood to sort of teen maturity and then adulthood all under the watchful eye of god dad so essentially your main character on this journey it's uh being it's like a a baby like that comes into existence in the first scene and meets sort of like a not even that similar to and especially legally distinct from care bear and then (laughs) there's sort of like a oh here's where you came from and it's you know clips about you know, where babies come from. But then God Dead, of course, comes along and, and harshes everybody's mellow and becomes this figurehead of both God and Father who, you know, forces maturity upon, the, the you know, this child character. And then, you know, the next sort of in-person live sequence that they do, which I don't know how they're going to do these whenever they release it, um, you know, to the public. They had DVDs for sale, but... I had already bought both the tickets, so um, and and spent a lot of money on a diet coke. Uh, so I, <laughs> I I was just like, mm, maybe, maybe when it comes down a little, like you know, uh, highly recommend it. It was a lot of fun. Everything is terrible is always putting out great content. Uh, this one in particular was very fun and exciting, and has made me want to track down previous Everything Is Terrible movies that I have not seen. You know, I I checked their social media after the last time we talked to be like, I need to follow them more closely because I haven't seen most of their movies either. And I noticed they were touring this around and it wasn't just in Texas, which was what I initially assumed. 
And when I checked, I had just missed their New Orleans show of this tour. I missed it by two days. They played uh, at Gossip oh, Gossip, no. which is like a music club. But I don't, I'm not going to music clubs right now anyway. Yeah. So I, it would have been like kind of an iffy, I'm not sure how I feel about being inside with Especially like a crowd right during now. during like carnival wildness. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. I will say this was, this was a, they seem to have undersold intentionally to allow for spacing and ever i i had my companion remain masked the whole time as did most viewers but i understand that's not going to be the case everywhere that you go yeah i'm like on the fence about that stuff i'm like slowly dipping my toe back into the world i'm going to the movies about once a week uh but i'm seeing a lot of art house shit where there's like maybe three other people in the room and then i see my friends out at parades right now because we are recording during mardi gras season and uh I see like crowds unmasked, even outside. I'm like, I am not ready for that level of social activity yet. (laughs) I've been seeing those pictures and I'm like, oh, did y'all forget the first go around? I can't tell what's happening. It feels like everyone's decided it's over. Yeah. And I can't tell how overcautious I'm being by not doing that. Once again, like after the first go around, it's like. New Orleans became this massive hotbed, one of the worst places in the world during the pandemic. Well, we'll see in two weeks how this turns out. (laughs) We'll update next recording how how big of a spike we got from this Mardi Gras season. Let's just go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, everything is terrible. (laughs) Uh, Also, speaking of the last time that we recorded, I had tried to rewatch all of the films in the alien series so that i could be completely prepared to talk about my rankings and even though i did not get as far as i wanted i was about halfway through alien 3 whenever i had to stop and then we recorded so if you go back and listen to that one even though i do rank it as my number three we didn't really talk about it and i didn't really defend it uh, very much even though i know that Neither of you care for it that much. Uh, There was the mention of it being boring and also the lack of believability about Ripley's prison romance. Yeah, I just, I thought it was unnecessary, which is weird for me because, you know, I love love, but yeah. I will go back and say that it is a very slow movie. It's a very slow movie and I do not blame anyone for checking out uh, during it because it, it certainly takes a really long time and i do think that it is an irony that the next one which has such a weird energy but at least it's an upbeat energy was made by a french director because (laughs) alien 3 does feel very french it feels very ennui it feels very slow and meditative and when i got to the halfway point and we had to pause and record the last episode i was like i might I might not be telling the truth about where this ranks. I might actually need to be lower. But then afterwards I finished watching and I remembered why I loved it so much. I love that you are once again grappling with the corporation as the real true evil. And before that, you've mostly just had this sort of amorphous, unknowable evil xenomorph entity as the rock and the corporation as the hard place and all these blue collar workers and later these soldiers as just sort of the bugs being crushed uh, between those two things. And this one, I really like that we see sort of solidarity between blue class workers and people who are imprisoned. 
And I also think that it would have almost been cowardly if the prisoners had been all prisoners of conscience. Even um, Charles Dance, who plays Sigourney Weaver's love interest, it's not even that he's like a prisoner of conscience. He became an addict and he killed someone accidentally, but it doesn't mean that he's not guilty of the crime that he committed. And so I think that even among sort of progressive creators, there is so often the need, or at least the compulsion, to present prisoners and felons and convicts with whom we are supposed to sympathize because they are being treated so horribly as exceptional prisoners, right? People who are prisoners of conscience, people who are victims of the system, Because that does happen, obviously. You know, most of the people who are in prison do not belong there. It's also just generally an objectionable objectionable system, so... And I agree. I I, I just feel like criticisms of the carceral justice system so frequently need, uh, or I guess feel the need to try and reach across the aisle by specifically focusing only on stories of injustice and... Alien 3 does not do that. The men who are in this prison are bad. They are they are they have done some horrible things and they have served their time and now they are voluntarily sort of keeping themselves away from society as caretakers of what used to be their prison, you know, to keep the machinery running. And so they are conscientious in a way that is unusual for the genre and i love that the fact that they are bad people who have committed and as we see at certain points in the film willing to once again commits uh, commit crimes of the most heinous kind that doesn't mean that they deserve to die and the corporation which is basically running a private prison has no qualms about letting them die So I think that there's more going on in that one than I think maybe audiences in 1992 were ready to talk about. And I think that there's more going on there than most people would give Alien 3 credit for. But I will say it's very slow. I do remember those aspects of it. And I remember being like, okay, I'm into that. But like, oh, slow. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think, again, what. We, we were butting heads on last time was like you were defending these movies based on like narrative and themes and uh, I was coming from it from like an entertainment value and like novelty factor as like monster movies and I want both yeah yeah <laughs> you know ideally uh, there would be a balance between both and we definitely had a few that we all agreed on being great uh, because they did both very well and I, th- I think that that's what surprises me about maybe even my own love of Alien Covenant because Alien Covenant's not trying to do any of that it is just a monster movie. It's yeah. just a slasher. But I, I I guess what I really love about that one is that it's honest about it. It's not really trying to pretend like it's not. So that's what I want. It can be one or the other or both, as long as it's not one pretending to be the other. And I guess I guess that's my my final my final <laughs> thoughts on that. Oh, I'm sure we are not done arguing about alien. Don't don't even try to put a button Never on that. Never done. <laughs> I also recently, and by recently, I mean right up until the final minutes before we started recording tonight, was watching a new mystery thriller that premiered just a couple days ago on Hulu called No Exit. You know, it was not 
the greatest movie that I've ever seen. It really feels like a, it reminded me a, a lot of identity, not in its theme. It doesn't have the sort of thematic thing that's going on with uh, identity. What you see is what you get with this movie, other than, of course, the normal twists and turns. It kind of starts a little rough. At the 30-minute mark, I was kind of rolling my eyes because essentially it's about a woman who is in a rehab facility because her only other option is prison. And she gets word from uh, someone at the hospital that her mother has had an aneurysm. And so it's her responsibility to get in touch with her sister let her sister know. So her sister gets to the hospital and she's like, don't come. Mom doesn't want you here. Blah, blah, blah. But she breaks out of this um, facility anyway, but unfortunately ends up trapped at a sort of like a visitor welcome center that has been opened up specifically as a shelter for people on the road. And she discovers that one of the other people who are there with her has a van in which a child has been tied up. So someone else there at this uh, Snowden Welcome Center is a kidnapper. I haven't seen the lead, Havana Rose Liu, in anything else before. Looking at her IMDb, um, this is maybe like her fourth or fifth feature role. Uh, but it does have Dale Dickey, who I always love in everything. She is the quintessential Southern matriarch in just about anything. I think the first thing I remember seeing her in might have actually been True Blood, where she was Martha Bozeman, who I believe was the leader of a group of Ware uh, Jaguars. Uh, she is really the only person in this that I have seen extensively in other films other than Dennis Haysbert, who has been in a lot of stuff, but I guess is probably best known as the deep-voiced Allstate man, which is a shame because, you He's know. He's a good actor. Yeah, he was, a, I mean, he he was on six seasons of 24, but that show has been off the air for 15 years, so. I mean, I know him from the Wood Todd Haynes movie he's in, but he's very good in that. And my parents watched The Unit, which he was in, which was like sort of a, you know, it's been five years of the War on Terror. Here's the CBS procedural about it. Which wasn't 24 kind of that as well. I mean, come on. Well, 24 was like, it's been 20 minutes since <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> Here's the Fox headline exploitation version. We are a Fox television show that is here to do the work of a Fox news program and convince the American public that waterboarding is A-OK right. if it saves the world. Heroic, even. But yeah, no exit, which I was immediately drawn to when I saw it on like the Hulu screen, I was like, oh, the Sart play? I was like, ooh, I'm excited. Uh, it's not that, although uh, hell is for sure other people in this uh, movie. I was very disappointed at the 30-minute mark because instead of sort of drawing out the mystery of who is the kidnapper a little longer, which is kind of what I expected and what I wanted, they sort of reveal who it is pretty quickly but then there are a couple more complications after that where i was uh one back over by its unpredictability but of course you know it's still held up as a consistent mystery so i would give it a recommendation if you're bored 
but it honestly feels very much like the kind of thrillers that in the 90s and the early 2000s would have a very brief theatrical release and then just show up on USA and TNT on like Saturday afternoons for the next like 15 years. <laughs> so, you know, if that sort of sounds like something you'd be into, I'd recommend it. And I would also say I really hate uh, the trope of our lead character being the one who is in rehab and the only one in the group who thinks rehab is bullshit. I hate that as a trope because it's yeah. so it's lazy and harmful. I just don't like it at all. And this movie does have that at the beginning, but uh, it it quickly departs from that. So if you like me have an intolerance for that kind of nonsense, just be aware that it does not last very long. Um, before I get to my last movie, I will say I have finished the X-Files. Nice. Wow. Is the truth out there? Is it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and go on record right now as saying seasons 10 and 11 of the X-Files are good, actually. I know that that was not a popular sentiment. It's certainly not what I have heard from every person that I spoke to who I said that I was working on watching all of these. Uh, we finished them just a few days ago, and looking back, I actually we actually started watching them March 2nd of 2021, so it took almost the whole year to watch The X-Files uh, at the time of this recording, but seasons 10 and 11 are good, actually. Is that the, like, years later reboot version, or is that... Yes. Oh, okay. Um, so you've got sort of the classic X-Files era from seasons 1 to 5 where it's shot in Vancouver and it has that like particular Vancouver aesthetic. And then you've got like seasons six and seven, which are after the movie, right? And you still got Scully and Mulder and it still feels like classic X-Files, but it doesn't anymore because they're in LA. So they spend a lot more time in the desert. It's like a, it gives it a different feeling, you know, that you just kind of can't put your finger on. Uh, season eight has minimal investment from, or involvement from David Duchovny where, you know, they write him out of the show because of in real life, his like contract issues or whatever. And he shows up every once in a while. Sometimes it's a flashback and sometimes it's a dream sequence, you know, and then season nine has no Mulder at all. And is even a little, a little light on Scully. Like there's a lot going on in that ninth season. That's just Doggett and Reyes. Um, I don't know if I've said this before, but I also want to say this for the record. Robert Patrick is a better actor than David Duchovny. <laughs> also, not nearly as sexy. <laughs> but also, his character is better at his job. His character is better at his job. We would, whenever we were watching and we would make fun of Doggett, I would always do my like rough Doggett voice, which is, yes. is <laughs> which is ninety percent Big Ange. I'm a damn good <laughs> cop. What do I look like, a cop? Yeah. Uh, Robert Patrick is a better actor than David Duchovny, but Doggett is a worse character. And I, David Duchovny might not be a great actor, but he and Gillian Anderson, it's lightning in a bottle. Really and truly, like you can't, you can't argue with that, to be honest. It's just, it's the two of them together that just make it, you know, that's what makes the magic. And so I think that's why I really liked the 2008 movie that they put out because it was Mulder and Scully together again. And then even seasons 10 and 11, it's back 
to being Mulder and Scully. And the mythology episodes in the new series are terrible. Like, I'll give you that, like, if that's what you're into, you probably won't have a good time. It's been a few years, so I'm going to spoil this. In the season nine finale of The X-Files, they disintegrated the cigarette smoking man. We watched him get blown to pieces by like a tomahawk missile fired yeah. from like a helicopter. I, the I special effects <laughs> showed his flesh being peeled from his bones. Okay. And somehow he's still alive in seasons nine and 10. I say, forget those episodes. Just <laughs> skip them. Anything with him in it, don't even worry about it. The Joel McHale, Alex Jones character was also pretty bad. I remember that being dire. I don't know if it's just been time and distance. Uh, that was actually the thing that I was most worried about. Uh, I think we might have even talked about that, which was that I didn't know how I was going to feel about a post 9-11 X-Files and especially like a quote unquote, quote unquote, post-truth X-Files. Um, and there is more of that in season 11 because that one was like during that administration. Season 10 was kind of before it where it just kind of seemed to be joking about the existence of this right-wing, you know, conspiracy theory world. But yeah, I, I don't buy at all that um, Scully would give any credence to any of that. But I did love Robbie Amell and Lauren Ambrose uh, as sort of the young, like, new version of Mulder and Scully. It was nice. It gave it a nice sense of continuity. But I'll stop talking about the X-Files. I'll just say it took a year and it was a long road (laughs) getting from there to here. And there were a lot of bumps in that road. But by the end of it, I was asking myself if this really was one of the greatest television shows of all time. I think it might be. I think it, I think it might be. It's one of my favorites. If I ignore the like overarching mystery and I just watch the monster of the week episodes, Yeah, my favorite shit. So good. But, uh, I am very excited to talk about the last thing that I uh, watched, which was Last Night in Soho. I'm dreading this discussion. (laughs) Brandon, um, I watched it and I was so excited. And this happens from time to time uh, where I'm very excited and I watch a movie and I'm I'm ready to put some, you know, pen to paper, uh, metaphorically, of course, and like write out like a a review. And then... (laughs) I go on Twitter before I do, and there's a new post from the Swamp Flicks account that's like the movie that I just watched and wanted to write about. And every single time, it's like a roll of the dice to be like, are we going to agree? And we definitely did not this time. Because <laughs> to me, this was this would have been in my top eight or seven last year if I had seen it uh, in time to put it on my list. And you did not like it. If the movie was just Anya Taylor-Joy dancing to 60s pop tunes in A-line baby doll dresses in like Argento lighting for like two hours, it would have been fantastic. You got that, though. You got that with Neon Demon. This was what I wanted Neon Demon to be. <laughs> this is what I wanted from Neon Demon when I saw all the trailers for that was Woof. this movie. And then I didn't care for that one because it is mostly just that. There's a little bit of other stuff, but it's not not enough for me in my watching experience. Whereas this, and I, I'm saying this as someone who I'm not just like a an Edgar Wright like lickspittle, 
I like spaced a lot. And I, you know, at one point before I decided to start, I decided it was, I, I, it would be a long time before I could watch Hot Fuzz again because it is copaganda. But that used to be my go to cheer up movie. But I also hate World's End. I hated that one. So I don't just, you know, mindlessly praise everything that he does as a director. I loved this movie. I loved the Argento lighting. I know that it's spectacle, and maybe I was just amused by the spectacle of this or blown away by it. But as there are so many intercuts between Eloise and Alexandra in this movie, where Eloise enters a scene and she walks by a mirror and she sees Sandy in it, and like as a seamless, uncut one track, like one shot tracking shot, it moves to sandy in that same space i don't know how he's doing it computers yes but like how where is the transition there oh where's the cut yeah where is the cut where is the transition it's it's truly astonishing to me i you know i understand how they do a lot of things but the seams are so apparent and in so much of this where this this looked like it was done with practical effects, but I know it could not have. Um, at least in those sequences, not the ghosts. The ghosts those look were, horrible. The they look like glass. Shit. The broken glass <laughs> looks worse than the ghosts somehow, which would you you would think that would be like if you were a special effects person, like you would learn how to make shards of glass look good uh, before you would even attempt like I don't know water or some other like baseline effect that you have to like do in all kinds of movies. The glass looks so bad. <laughs> like TV budget level bullshit. Uh, which glass are you talking about? There's so many broken mirrors in so many scenes where like, you know, the sort of gimmick of the movie is you have someone in modern times who's like stuck in this mirror realm watching the past as like an observer. And she tries to break through to get to the woman that she's observing and sort of like living vicariously through. And by like pounding on the glass of the mirror, it shatters and breaks. Um, and there's other scenes where the ghosts kind of break through to her realm and there's like shards of mirror in multiple scenes in the movie. It's like a, a pretty common image and it looks like computer effects from like the mid nineties. Like, I, I don't understand how it's so lazy. The neon. So like when she's going up the stairs and they transform into glass, is that like one of the, like the sequences that you're talking about? No, I'm literally talking about just like none of the supernatural stuff, just like rendering broken glass as a computer generated image mm. looks like absolute trash in this movie. Like so lazy. I'm going to go ahead and say that there's a stabbing that occurs. That's pretty central to the plot. And we are watching it through this modern day character's eyes. And those eyes are reflected in the blade of the knife. And that looked kind of iffy to me too, in the same way that the glass did and maybe I shouldn't have, maybe you're right, maybe I'm wrong, but I was kind of giving some of that the benefit of the doubt as far as surreality of the overall experience. Yeah, and honestly, if, if I was more into the movie as a style exercise and as a political statement, I, which neither of those things worked for me, then I wouldn't have been nitpicking yeah. the CGI. I wouldn't have cared. Because the, the ghost um, imagery, too looks exactly like the final reveal in Lucky. And in that movie, it didn't bother me at all because I was on board for what the movie was doing and saying. So like, I don't know. I'm, I'm literally just nitpicking 
something because I was I was already bothered by it. I guess I will say uh, I think that it's uh, political ideas are muddy at best. <laughs> I agree there. <laughs> yeah, vapid. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty valid. Actually, probably I would agree. The final reveal is vapid anyway. Maybe not the whole setup, but I enjoy it as a twist. But I completely understand where you're coming from. Where it's not the revelation of of the twist is kind of like. Mm, I can see how this is threaded throughout, but now what you're expressing as an ideology to match what is happening does not hold water for me. So that is where it kind of falls apart. Like I'm with it 80% of the way, (laughs) but that that. last 20% is a big leap for me. Yeah. But it did prompt me to bust out the Argento index. So essentially whenever I did my big, what was at the time entirety of the filmography of Dario Argento, I started almost accidentally to start keeping track of recurring elements in his films. And then sort of by the time I was to the eighth or ninth one, the patterns were sort of revealing themselves to me. So I decided to go ahead and create a formula where if something appeared in three or more films, I would add it to this list. And for each film in which it appeared, I would give a weighted uh, score to that movie for having that element. So, for example, there are four Argento movies that involve witches. So every one of his movies that had witches in it, I gave four points to. And at the end of that, I totaled it all, totaled it all up so that it would have sort of like a, a weighted number of, you know, if something appeared in 11 Argento movies, then each of those movies got 11 points because that made it that much more of an Argento element, right? So you're like mathematically deciding what is the most Argento movie with yes. actual metrics. And sometimes every once in a while, I'll just play it with like any Giallo movie that I'm watching. Like, mm, if this were an Argento movie, what would its Argento uh, index score be? This one came out at 61.5 on the Argento index. Uh, that puts it just ahead of the TV movie that he directed in 2005 entitled Do You Like Hitchcock, which had a score of 60.5. And behind Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which had an Argento score of 65.5. His first movie, right? Yeah. And one of the ones that this film borrows from most explicitly, I think. So here are the things that appear in a bunch of Argento movies that also appeared here. We have protagonist who is an artist. That's nine. We have a protagonist who is a student. That's four. And we have a protagonist who's a woman, which is nine. So we've got that right out of the gate. We have a traumatized killer, which appears in seven Argento films. We have clues appearing in or being hidden by mirrors, which appears in seven films. We have clues that are obscured. And again, I guess we're going to spoil Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but it's 60 years old at this point. The man who is the protagonist of that film sees what he believes to be a stabbing of one person by another. But at the film, we actually find out that he completely misunderstood what he was seeing. There was something that obscured what was actually happening there. 
uh, and in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, as in this one, is the revelation that a murder that we and the protagonist see early on turns out to actually be going the other way. And then we have vehicular Darwinism, which is a <laughs> four point, which is what happens when um, <laughs> Terrence Stamp wanders out into the street and after multiple fake out scares of near accidents, which I appreciated. Uh, and then we have um, sort of a particular kind of assault that I won't say, but occurs in eight Argento films. Now, the last one is I gave this one uh, normally I would give five points to any film with a traumatized protagonist, but it requires that there be a flashback to that traumatic event. However, Eloise is the protagonist here. The flashback isn't to her own traumatic incident. It's to Sandy's. So I gave it two and a half points for that. It almost should count that um, she's also a sort of spiritual medium and she gets visits from her long dead mother in the mirror a lot as well, uh, which is, you know, kind of a, not quite a flashback, but like a visitation from a past trauma. Yeah. That's close. It's close. That's why I gave it a half uh, of a re- of a representation. Maybe. Can I throw a wild card in there? Yes. The the most obvious like Argento nod to me, like beyond the sort of surface level Jalo visual markers that a lot of people like to use these days, was like she goes to this um, fashion school right, and uh, she's getting bullied in the dorms, and then she just doesn't like the vibe, so she then gets an off campus apartment, and that's when the supernatural troubles start. Which to me was like very Susie Banyan in Suspiria, like going to the dance academy and be like, actually, I'm going to live off campus. And then just being like completely terrorized for that decision, like almost instantly. Yeah, that's definitely present here. There's just something about the mean girls at boarding school. Right. Because that's present in Phenomenon as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Phenomenon. Love that movie. Which Phenomenon has the most triumphant example of my favorite recurring Argento element, which is the intergenerational investigative duo (laughs) which appears in multiple argento films but i think i like obviously i like most in phenomenon where it's you know this like teenage girl and this like middle-aged entomologist but i did actually include in my notes that i considered that one for this film however they don't actually do any sleuthing together no so i didn't include that i also considered giving half a point or half credit for films that have a major scene taking place in an opera or in an opera house. Cause there is, uh, if this had been an Argento film, then Sandy would not have gone to work uh, where she went to work. She would have gone to work at an opera house instead of as a dancer or a singer. Um, but her desire to be a singer is a very, uh, both Phantom of the Opera and opera Opera, of course, by which I mean your favorite Argento. Yeah. Granted, not not opera as a genre. Well, at least until Dark Glasses uh, comes out. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. I have occasionally a weakness for magical thinking. And I was really concerned that somehow my conclusion of watching everything Argento ever made would cause him harm. Uh, that like Because <laughs> he's such an old man. And I, it was just yeah. the... It would just be too much if, like, I had watched all those movies <laughs> and finished them in 2016 and then he had died. But he's alive and he's making another one. He's made another one. It's and he's out. acting in a Gaspar Noe movie this year. He's yeah, thriving. So 30, 
times three, flirty and thriving. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I will hand it off. Brandon, what have you been watching? I'll stick to new releases. I- I've seen a bunch of 2022 movies in the past week, and they're all like extremely low budget. This was not some kind of choice. <laughs> like, I wasn't deliberately doing this, but I've been watching a lot of very low budget movies. Uh, there's a very buzzy horror film that just premiered on Shudder this week called Hellbender. Yeah, I was curious about that. It's at least thematically appropriate to this episode because it is a folk horror movie. I think that's why I was curious. <laughs> yeah. Well, it actually makes an appearance in that um, Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched, cause, which I would like to carve out some time maybe at the end of the episode to talk about that documentary because I watched that as yeah. well. It's made by this family who, no joke, their names are the Adams, so they're the Adams family, and they make horror movies together. It's like... This husband and wife and their two daughters um, have been making low-budget like backyard movies for years. That's so good. If you look at the credits, it's like they do everything. They like you know shoot it themselves. They edit. They uh, do the soundtrack. They have other people do the effects work on the computers. But like a lot of the actual production stuff is just the four of them. This one is a mother and daughter living in the woods, and they make art together. So it's like kind of an extension of what they normally do anyway. Uh, they make less metal Jucifer type music. It's just like a two-piece semi-punk band, these kind of cute songs. And then uh, the daughter is being isolated by the mother for reasons she doesn't understand. The mother keeps telling her she's sick, but it turns out that like she's actually just part of this bloodline of witches. And if she ever like ingests a living being, like it starts off with her drinking like a tequila worm. If she ever eats something that, that has lived she becomes a danger to everyone around her. It like gives her magical powers and the two of them sort of navigate her discovering this witchcraft power inside of herself, uh, kind of in the tradition of movies we've talked about before, like ginger snaps or Jennifer's body or teeth or something like that. It's like a coming of age witchcraft horror film made in the woods with a very small cast. It's honestly not as low budget as I expected, at least not in its like production values. Like, when you say a backyard movie, I kind of expect something a lot more chaotic and surprising and sort of like volatile and just weird. This is like impressive because it's competent. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you'd not told me this was a backyard movie and it was just like a shutter premiere, um, except maybe the um, image quality of the cameras they're using, that wouldn't have really surprised me. Like there's a lot of like drone shots and like, CG effects that were done in post and there's just like a slickness to it that um, doesn't really feel like what I think of when it's just like, Oh, just a few people in the woods with a camera making a movie with like the resources they have on hand. So I don't know. It was almost like competent to a fault where I was like, Oh, that was pretty good. They did. They did well, (laughs) but I wasn't like, (laughs) uh, you know, like on the edge of my seat, like what crazy thing is going to happen next in this? Um, but but it has gotten a lot of buzz and, you know, a lot of people really like it. I might be just not giving it enough credit. Also, maybe people who've been watching them make movies over the years. I, I think this is at least their fourth film, maybe maybe more. Maybe watching these kids grow up and watching the production values get slicker and slicker is, like, exciting. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just missing the progression of their art over the years. But I thought it was fine. Uh, it wasn't that exciting <laughs> to me, but I did get in the mail the new Matt Farley Blu-ray for uh, Metal Detector Maniac, uh, which amazing, was amazing, the exact 
thing I was just talking about, where it is like a constantly surprising, actual no budget, people in the woods with a camera dicking around and being surprisingly funny. I don't feel like I'm a legitimate member of Swamp Flicks because I haven't watched any of his movies. All you have to do is watch Local Legends. It will take 70 minutes of your time and you will instantly be a fan of his. Yeah. That'll tell you everything. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, that's not even like, a, oh, it's his best stuff. It's like, it's him like telling you who he is, where to find his movies, how he makes money. <laughs> and if you have any follow-up questions, his cell phone, so you can call him at any hour of the day. Really and truly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's a very direct introduction to his work. Metal Detector Maniac is more in the style of uh, Don't Let the River Beast Get You and Monsters, Marriage and Murder in Manch Vegas. Like, uh, it, it's another horror comedy about a maniac with a metal detector. <laughs> I won't um, spoil how that villain plays out, but I will say half of the movie is about investigating the weirdo with the metal detector. But like every Matt Farley movie, he's not as interested in that threat that he is with just people hanging out. So the two main characters are academics on a sabbatical. And all of the movie is actually just a joke about how Matt Farley is insanely jealous about how cushy academic jobs are and like how the idea of a sabbatical and like pre-writing is or like university press, like how like um, him being self-published as an artist is not as respected as a university press of like someone's book or album, but like really it's basically just self-publishing when then you where then you make your students buy your work and like he's just extremely bitter about that setup and and just makes really hilarious jokes about it 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 was very funny but um also on that disc included another feature film that he made last year called heard she got married and that one is kind of a dark follow-up to local legends it's kind of like a he calls it in the commentary he calls it a a straightforward psychological thriller. And uh, <laughs> it, it plays like the same, like, you know, local artists who can't make it um, sort of bumming around town and like how embarrassing it is that no one comes to your shows, but makes it extremely dark and um, turns the like sort of like thriller elements in his work um, more violent than usual. Still a lot of funny jokes and a lot of like quirky, like character traits running throughout it, but a really weird, mature effort from these people who have been making goofball horror movies in their backyard in New England for the last 20-plus years. So um, highly recommend getting the Blu-ray. Both of the movies were very satisfying uh, if you're already in tune with the Matt Farley brand. But yeah, I would maybe recommend watching River Beast and Manch Vegas and Local Legends before buying Metal Detector Maniac. And I got one more, and I think... This is like my bigger blanket recommendation for this episode. I went to the movie theater and watched Strawberry Mansion, which I think both of you would like very much. Go on. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's set in 2035. It's about an IRS tax man who goes to this artist's house. She's an elderly woman um, who's kind of off the grid, and she's supposed to be uploading her dreams to the cloud to be... Um, text for these like really petty items like anytime you dream about an object like you know a chair or like a dog or a car then that gets taxed for pennies 
by the government. And um, she's not uploading her stuff properly. She's storing her dreams on VHS tapes. And this IRS tax man has to audit her dreams. Wait, did I make this movie? <laughs> it's so good. It's got this um, analog, very uh, Michelle Gondry style of dream logic filmmaking. Everything's very tactile. So there's a lot of puppetry and stop motion and tape warp and uh dan deacon does the soundtrack so there's all these like synths sort of like bubbling in the background raising up the tension and uh it ends up being this like really wild romance between this man who falls in love with a younger version of the woman because she when she dreams she dreams a younger version of herself and um the two of them fall in love and it becomes this like futuristic dystopian sci-fi romance movie where they have to like fight evil ad agencies in the in the near future by running through these like uh michelle gondry music video sets i don't know it's it's very like Uh, beautiful and fun so sold i think it is gonna be on vod soon if it's not already there Um, and I, i saw it at the broad theater so it was playing on the big screen as well It's a great glimpse into some of the more frightening superstitions from the Ukraine, including witches, spells, and demons. Although Gogol stated in the preface of his story that it was based on a folktale, this may have been a literary device. Many elements of this story are adapted from folklore, but folklorists debate the validity of the demon called V. After watching the documentary of folklore, I decided, oh man, I wouldn't watch so many of those movies. And luckily, Shudder has like a full collection. One of them that really stood out to me is the 1967 Russian, or, well, Soviet, the first horror film produced in the Soviet Union called V. I know it's a weird time with the current events and things, and I do not have any uh, poignant stuff to add other than, ugh, that's awful. Yeah, no one in this uh, Discord room um, is an expert on Russian-Ukrainian politics, other than the fact that warfare is just generally awful and unnecessary. But this movie starts out with a bunch of seminarians being sent on holiday, and they're just like a bunch of dipshit men who, in a clear like critique of religion, you know, take advantage of their privilege and run around causing mayhem. And we start out following three of these men, and they're on a holiday, they get lost, and they come to this old farmhouse and request from an old woman to stay there. She says, yeah, well, first she says, no, there's no room. And then she says, fine, but you have to sleep in three separate places. Eventually, we end up following one that she rides like a horse and starts flying (laughs) with. And he's just like, you're a witch. And then when they land, he then beats her to death. And she turns into a young woman and he runs away back to the seminary, wherein his mentor, I don't know, like, what rank is this old man? I don't know religion, especially not Eastern Orthodox. 
I just took him as like a professor type that was teaching all these knuckleheads how to take over his job when he dies. Yeah. Just leading them in their religious study. Yeah, this head father, we'll we'll just say that, uh, tells him that he's requested to go pray over this rich lord's daughter because she's sick. And clearly he doesn't want to leave the seminary again, but he's dragged there by these, like, wild, wild men. And he gets to the house. It's the same house he was at before, the farmhouse. Or at least I think it's supposed to be the same place. Yeah, it's not super clear in the movie, but my understanding is that in the story that is the case. Yeah, and the girl has died. He is supposed to pray over her body for three nights in this creepy, cool church. And it turns out, of course, the young girl is the witch. And each night as he prays, he's haunted by the witch. The first night is just her walking around after he draws the sacred chalk circle. And he's not doing a whole lot of praying over a body either. Like, let's be real. He's not. He's just trying to survive the night. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second night, she's flying around in her coffin. Like trying a surfboard. To get at him. Yeah, it was so good. Uh, and then the third night is when uh, literal hell breaks loose. And there's demons. And it's really good. I really got a kick out of this one. I didn't expect it to be as uh, wacky and goofy, but I liked that aspect of it. It felt very like like recounting a ghost story rather than, you know, traditional sort of like what we think of as a spooky horror movie. And It's kind of a horror comedy I'm into in some that. ways. Yeah, exactly. I, I really, I really appreciated that. Especially because I, you know, I went into this movie like blind, not really knowing like, what to expect so uh, what did uh, y'all think I think you've seen this before right Brandon yeah I reviewed this a couple of years ago it's kind of a hard sell I think because not a lot happens for like long stretches in it and yeah. it's like to me this is a four star like great horror movie not not only for being like the first Soviet horror films that's got like that historical significance but like basically for all the amazing demon creatures that appear in the last five minutes oh so good it's got one of the all-time great horror endings yeah but it's hard to sell that because it's like you have to sit through a lot of just goofball nonsense for most of the runtime like there's some flashes of how magical things will get early in the movie a lot of green screen style like almost like silent era special effects yeah but they're all like kind of teases and the movie just lets go of every insane impulse it has in the last five to ten minutes. And, like, that is the prize. Like, you have to put in the work to get there. So it's like, if you kind of sold this movie as being this, like, crazy, demonic, free-for-all, you're kind of right. But, like, I feel like yeah. if you told someone to watch it on that basis, they'd be sitting there, like, tapping their foot, waiting for that third night that he's in the, like... um in the room of the witch and then she like calls all her demon friends through the wall and you're like oh there's all the creatures and you could pause the frame and just step it one second at a time for that entire conclusion you just see a new goofball monster (laughs) i mean like just you know focus on one at a time it's a 
great ending to a movie that will take its time getting there, but I think it's very much worth the, like, whatever, 75 minutes it takes to, like, get to the end. Yeah. To its credit, even though it does spend what seems like a lot of time farting around, um, (laughs) it actually doesn't spend that much time because it's only, like, 73 minutes long. It's nice and short. And before I realized that, it did feel like it took a really long time before we got to the first night and the events thereof. And it was like, oh, God, that's only the first night. There are two more nights. But they plow through them. They do not waste a lot of time. Uh, In between each night, he gets maybe like one scene where he has dinner long enough for everybody to marvel at his hair turning white and that sort of thing. And boom, he's back in there. So it feels like it takes a really long time to get where it's going, but it's still only like 40 minutes. You feel those minutes, though. I mean, come on. There's some stretches that are like outright boring, I think. The amount of time that they spend in that wagon before they get to the inn, that is, I think, where it feels the longest. It's interminable. You could trim about 90% of that. Uh, but then you'd only you'd really only give yourself like five minutes back. But you know that then you've got a seventy-one minute movie. Is that even a feature anymore? <laughs> Who knows? I'm gonna go ahead on and say that I wish this was subtitled instead of dubbed. Yeah, yeah. These English performances are. I assume that everyone who did them is dead, so I'm not gonna mince words. Bad. Yeah. The inflection is all wrong. They do seem to be putting more, and I, I I know that this was a thing for a time, there seems to be more of an attempt to match the mouth movements of the actors than to perform the lines in a way that sounds natural or normal. Uh, I noticed a lot that it seemed like they would get really loud whenever, you know, a character's, uh, you know, a Ukrainian actor's mouth would get real big. They would get real loud in the English dialogue. But that is the wrong tack to take. Because there is a scene late in the movie where um, Koma is, you know, he's saying the prayers and then he starts to sing. And the, the captions just say, singing in russian and it's the actor's real voice and it's so good it's like, oh we could have been doing this the whole time motherfucker yeah. so i don't know if there exists a version i assume that there must just be a subtitled version somewhere but it is not the version that's on. well Shutter, i don't think it's was... readily available because this movie's now been released twice on blu-ray in recent years and these are these like boutique blu-ray labels that are like putting in painstaking effort to like actually preserve films as best as they can um, I can't remember if it's Severin or Arrow that did this, all the Hans BRs box set, but um, they would have released the subtitled version if they could, I think. Um, whatever master they have, I mean, whatever print they have access to is going to be the dubbed one because that's what they went with. My main complaint about the dub is it sounds like one person doing every voice. It, it sounds like a book on tape almost <laughs> of like a single Kinda performer. Um, there's like no differentiation between each character really yeah it is very bad (laughs) yeah in an ideal world we'd have the original audio track yeah it would be less noticeable also if there (laughs) i'm i'm not living in um the ussr in 1967 so you know who's to really say but if i were to make this movie i think that i would pick up with the three men in the marsh I don't think that we had to have the whole school's out for summer. I love that bit, actually. (laughs) I feel like it really sells the fact that, like, 
they kind of deserve what's coming. Yeah, to they're them, dipshits. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. They're on spring break, just like basically causing a havoc, stealing chickens and like sexually assaulting people and just being yeah. fucking horrible. Uh, so when a rich rides one of them like a horse, you're like, oh, you kind of deserve to be yeah. made an ass of, I think. Also, you know, like you got to have that Soviet critique of religion. Like, yeah, I imagine true. that's part of how this was able to be released in that time. You know, if you're the Soviet Union and this is a Ukrainian folktale, you're not going to want individual like areas of the Soviet Union having that like regional pride. Right. Like that's what I remember Starkovsky getting like censored left and right trying to make these very reverent religious films about like yeah. almost like religious ecstasy. Yep. This is a lot more like taking the piss out of like these institutions and then taking the um actual like demonic possession stuff very seriously at the end I think. Even though some of the monsters are goofy. Yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be like legitimately magical. Yeah, V is such a goofy friend. <laughs> I want V around like all the time. V is the head monster who can see everything as long as you lift his eyelids for him because he's these long drooping yeah. eyelids that he can't lift because they're too heavy. Yeah, I feel him. He's very sleepy and I appreciate it. Did you read about uh, this book's origins? The uh, the original no. novel from Gogol. Basically, all historians are like, this is not actually a Ukrainian folktale. This guy just made this shit up. <laughs> like, oh, okay. It might have some like influences from folktales, but like the demon V is like not present in any other text that anyone can cite. Like they think <laughs> that it's just like a creation of Gogol, uh, which is funny. Oh, that's he's like really a good. horror elf on the shelf where it's like <laughs> suddenly it appeared and they acted like it's been a thing, right, 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 forever. When yes. really it was just a Barnes and Noble sales push in 2013 oh gosh but it also inspired baba's black sunday which is another classic so i don't know he's made his mark i saw that black sunday was vaguely like supposed to be based off of the same thing and i was like i have seen both of these and what (laughs) i kind of see it but not really yeah yeah exactly there's a witch right right. (laughs) witch getting revenge I will say I loved, we talked about the end, but I actually loved the special effects throughout uh, for the most part. There's a matte painting of the village early on, back when they have their first like schools out, get out of here moment. And then of course it cuts to like an actual countryside where there's like a bridge across some water. Like it really effectively uses its studio work versus its location work. You rarely see a film even in the, modern day that like is as good about like tricking you into thinking that an interior is exterior uh of course not whenever it's like the rear projection of the witch flying around although that looks i love that floating not the floating the rotating floor underneath the rotating floor is very so good and and his like takeoff is really cool. It's just the rear projection of like the ground as they yeah. fly by. And it's really it's mostly just a matter of perspective because it's just that it's a it's like it's helicopter footage looking straight down, but we're viewing them from the side, so it just kind of looks like they're flying like realisting completely to the right. <laughs> I also really loved her like her rotations anytime that there was like a rotation or a revolution that was going on in the church 
and you were looking at it from the outside, it was real mm-hmm. cool. Sometimes when you were looking at it from the inside, it had very much like Adam West Batman surf competition. <laughs> yeah, I like that though too. Like, yeah. it's okay when it looks a little goofy because kind of like what I was saying with Strawberry Mansion, that kind of like tactile, hands-on craft, like, I don't know, it's charming. Even when it doesn't like sell as an illusion. Yeah. I also, like, I know like we're talking about like, oh, it's all about the third night, but we can't undersell the first two nights because the witch is really good. And also, yeah. her look, that's how I want to look like the rest of the year. I want to look like a witch that rose from her coffin to torment a man. Like, flower crown, long white gown, that's the look I'm going to aspire for the rest of the year. I also like that I feel like in a lot of movies where it's somebody being haunted night after night, Usually, they don't end up dead from the haunting. Right. Like, I know it does happen in movies, but usually they don't get mauled by demons in a church. Maybe him learning his lesson uh, was part of the uh, getting the, the movie greenlit uh, or approved yeah. by whatever, you know, morality board had to, like, approve those kinds of productions. Because it, it does feel like it's getting away with something. So, th- you know, there had to be a lot of compromises in the plot. I do kind of want to ask, um, because I did watch the entirety of the three-and-a-half-hour folk horror documentary that you already referenced, uh, Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched. Uh, it, it was Severin that put these out. So basically there was a box set of a bunch of different folk horror movies, a lot of them like TV movies, a lot of them like classics that haven't been on physical media in decades. And they were going to produce this sort of like DVD extra documentary, I think for either Witchfinder General or one, one of the, like the core, what they call the Unholy Trinity in the movie. The Unholy Trinity, yeah. So they were going to produce this like sort of like quickie 20-minute rundown of what folk horror is. And then it spiraled out into this three-and-a-half-hour documentary that sort of inspired a lot of the selections for the box set. And now that documentary is on Shudder with a lot of these movies from the Severin box set. And I watched it, and I think V is, like, more than, like, two hours into the film. Like, it, V is, yeah. like, in the last, like, 45 minutes, I feel like, is when it gets referenced. Because it kind of starts in England, and then America, and then Canada, and kind of, like, spirals out from, like, English-speaking nations to, like, yeah. uh, other countries around the world. Um, so it gets to V eventually, and I was just kind of wondering what about it jumped out at you, and, like... What really, like, stuck out to you in the documentary? Like, what what really piqued your interest in that, like, giant spiraling definition of the folk horror canon? So, as far as V goes, I have been looking at it, like, on Shutter for a while. Because it's been on there. Yeah. For a little bit. So, I've been looking at it for a while. I love folk horror. I love witches. And I really like horror from that era. There's something about it that, you know, you got the psychedelia, you got, like, we've talked about, like, the tactile effects. Like, it's pre-computers in general. So, yeah, there's all of that that kind of piqued my interest. And then, you know, a lot of the visuals that they showed were pretty cool. So I was like, you know what? Let's check that out. I'm a big old nerd. So watching that documentary, I was like, oh, I would still take a class on this. I would still learn more on this topic. But, you know, as far as like the takeaway of 
what is Volcor, I still am like, I don't I don't know if they really explained it, other than the horror on the edges of society and civilization kind of seems to be like what they settled on. And unlike a lot of movies referenced in it, like I think this one fits in better because it is told like a folktale and it does have the witch and, you know, it feels very, yeah, folksy, like very like a traditional sort of story. Even though it's not a proper fairy tale, it feels yeah. like a fairy tale. It feels like a folk tale. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, also, I mean, Brandon, both of us share like just this love of movies that have witches in them. Yeah, I started taking notes during the documentary. Uh, I was like, oh, you know, I'll just write down a few movies that like really stand out to me. I literally did, tried doing that too. <laughs> and it was just like every movie was like, well, that one has a witch in it. I'll exactly. watch anything with a witch in it. So like, it was like hundreds of titles. I was like, fuck it. I'll just go to Letterboxd and cheat off someone else's legwork <laughs> and added everything with a witch in it to my watch list. Some of the movies I feel like in the documentary that they were trying to make the argument for being folk horror, I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. Like, the person in the documentary that wanted to make the uh, argument that the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a full core. I was like, Ugh. I guess because of the production design, you have those like, um, yeah, those like skeleton sculptures in the house. Yeah. And it being like on the edge of society and isolated and all that. But what, what really stood out to me was like the idea of like ritual being very important. Um, yes. And I think that's where V kind of fits in. And Actually, Boomer might be interested in this. Like, they kind of talk about Christianity as something that deserves to be looked at from like an outsider's perspective as being these like folksy rituals, um, especially since yeah. it borrowed so much from paganism anyway. Um, so, right. like, one of the things they cite visually to talk about like American religion is Marjo. So, like, there are clips from Marjo in there, and then um, I think. Specifically, when they were talking about V, they were talking about it being like, you know, traditionalist Christian faith rituals, but like presented in a way that we normally see, like, you know, like the cult rituals in Midsummer or something like yeah. that. Uh, which I think, I think yeah, that holds true. It's very like this man at a podium, like, and I mean, once again, he doesn't do a whole lot of praying because, you know, despite his uh, designation as a man of the faith, he's clearly not. But also just like the repetition of the two of them having that like supernatural war- warfare for three nights. Like that's yes. a ritual in itself. Like them meeting it at is, midnight to sure. like have their like witchy battle. I, d- I don't know. I, d- I didn't know that the documentary was actually like that incredible. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of talking yeah. heads who make a lot of like interpretive statements about like how folk horror came about that I didn't think were very insightful. It was like, oh, people no. were scared of hippies or, you know, people were wanting to get away from industrial life uh, in the big yeah. city. It's like, okay, yeah, that's all pretty fucking obvious. If you watch like two or three of them, you kind of get it without all that yeah, like handholding. Also, I don't think until they talked about like like Irving Washington, did they really get into the fact that it is a longstanding like narrative tradition to tell these like ghost stories and things like I feel like they they really drove home and focused on film when, you know, anybody who has studied film knows that, like, the ideas come from somewhere and mostly film doesn't make things up. <laughs> mostly film steals from other art forms and mediums. 
The only thing that really like surprised me was just how recently the the term was coined. Like people weren't yeah. saying folk horror as a solidified genre until the 2000s, which feels like insanely recently to me because you watch something like The Wicker Man, which I honestly did not see until until like the 2010s, but like you watch something yeah, like that and you're like Oh, that's folk horror. Like you just kind of know it when you see it. It's like what yeah, else would you, you know call it? You know when you see it for sure. <laughs> So I don't know. That was the one thing that like really caught me off guard. I also didn't expect there to be Guy Madden, yeah, Guy collage Madden animation stuff. stuff in the in the movie. Gave it kind of a visual flair. Yes. But you know, as a canon of titles and like trying to define what makes folk horror, like what are the core folk horror films? It was definitely worth all the effort of like just trying to. I don't know. Since it is such a new term, like gather all the movies. I when I watched yeah. the a few years ago, I never called i never thought of it as a folk horror movie but i i kind of see where they were coming from now yeah and that one's actually in the box set there's like hundreds of movies referenced in the documentary not all of them are in the box set and that one is in the core set so like they, they are putting this out there as a folk horror film and i i guess it works um if you can consider yeah. christianity rituals on the same level as uh the more pagan stuff yeah you know it's like until really the witch i don't think many people had thought of anything as folk horror or me personally i i really hadn't so it doesn't surprise me so much that it is a new term but as someone who like did go to film school and did take a lot of film classes like i think if it had been an older term i would have heard of it before then i don't know it's one of those things where it's like like you said you know it when you see it and it's pretty interesting area of like studying and I'm glad that they're taking the time to take these movies and put them together and just have this like canon of folk horror, you know, because I personally like I think about a lot of the movies that I really enjoy and I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I, I think I like this genre. <laughs> Anytime anyone on this podcast wants to pick a movie with a witch in it, I think that's my main um, revelation from this past week. It's like, <laughs> I don't even care if it's good. Yeah. I'm like, witchcraft? Okay. You got my yeah, attention. I'm sold. Yeah. I don't know if we sold the documentary to you, Boomer. I am still interested in it. You know, if I got through 10 hours of Never Sleep Again, I'm sure I can get through three hours of folk. You enjoyed the Elm Street one, right? Oh, I did. I loved yeah. it. I think this is on the same level. It, it honestly has more visually going on because, you know, the clips aren't from like one series of films. So like, you know, as they move from country to the country, the imagery, you know, alters dramatically. I also liked the uh, amount of directors that were actually interviewed, I think, especially, you know, women directors that have made recent like folk horror movies. Like I talked about it a while ago to y'all because I had watched it uh, the movie The Wind so the director of that movie had like a good like interview section on there and talked about how she developed writing that movie that I thought kind of gave me a more of an appreciation for a movie that I thought was you know slightly above average at the time so I liked that aspect as well is like when they could find the people who worked on the movies they did that's kind of a danger of these things too is like I feel like the more I follow horror people 
like horror talking heads online, the harder it is for me to distinguish what's actually good. Cause like, yeah, I don't know. Even, even just talking about that hellbender movie that came out this week, like it's included in this documentary. So for decades, this will be the like canon of folk horror films that people refer back to. And I just saw that movie and it was fine, <laughs> you know, and yeah. uh, it's like listed um, in the same breadth as, you know, the first Soviet horror film or, uh, you know, the definitive works of the genre, like Witchfinder General and uh, Wicker Man and stuff like that. It's like, are those on the same level? Do they do they really need to be discussed that way? I, I don't know. You know, I think it's I and obviously this cannot be done, but it's kind of like if you were to just collect a bunch of slashers, you know, right. There's going to be a few duds. Um, it just happens that this is a little bit narrower of a subgenre. But I get what you're saying. And I am I'm curious because like it also seems maybe like full core since it does focus on witches like it seems like it's a lot more like women centered and so i am curious to see if with this documentary and with the women being interviewed on it and that whole aspect like will there be more like full cores and things written by women and directed and i really hope so <laughs> boomer i will say that um and i said it last time we recorded when I was talking about this uh, documentary is it's literally broken up into parts and chapters and it doesn't make sense to me to be like all in one chunk. So if you need to break it up, if you're like, I'll just watch a little bit, it is totally doable to stop in between sections. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't just release it like on shutter as a, uh, you know, mini series of a documentaries because they have yeah. those all the time. I know. But this played at like festivals as like a sit down and watch it all in one go I movie. I cannot imagine. Yeah. Because <laughs> I broke it in half because I had to, I had to, I had to clean. <laughs> I had things to do. But it's totally, it's totally something you can break into pieces. I also know that the, uh, the woman who directed it also wrote that book, um, House of Psychotic Women. Which I think is like oh. a pretty heavily referenced text in like horror academia. So um, maybe her namesake being on it made it, you know, a bigger get. <laughs> like it made it like a, a bigger to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I suspect she'll be making more documentaries in the future because this seemed to do pretty well. And, you know, is promoting great films like V, which. Yeah. Even if they've been around, like there's a lot of great movies that are like available right now that, you know, people just kind of need to push. To go press play on, which is kind of what happened today. Yeah, exactly. Do we have any more thoughts on V? I mean, other than I love him and I want to make like a big stuffed animal of him <laughs> to keep him around all the time, <laughs> which I might end up doing because he's such a good friend. I will say it does appear because I also did a little bit of research about the um, original text, as it were, and in the story it's not his eyelids that are heavy it's his eyelashes oh. so take from that what you will I, for, I, that made me think of me as like a big drag queen <laughs> yes <laughs> i love it i've worn those lashes before they're very distracting especially if you have glasses <laughs> my eyelashes are literally too heavy for me to see this guy help me pick them up there he is <laughs> i mean he did make quite an entrance he sure did well next week on the show we're not talking about anything nearly as fun as v 
Uh, we're wa- watching four Michael Haneke films because uh, that's what James wanted to discuss. Oh, yeah, that is not as fun. <laughs> Which means in the lead up to the week of Mardi Gras, I've been watching Michael Haneke night after night after night. <laughs> which is maybe the cruelest <laughs> thing anyone's ever done to me on this podcast before. But I love James. And I'm willing to do it for him. <laughs> and uh, it'll be a good discussion, even though um, I didn't go into it with like full enthusiasm because Michael Haneke makes you feel like shit. <laughs> I, uh, I've appreciated more of the movies than I expected to. So I look forward to talking about those. And we're going to start with his debut film, Seventh Continent, which I don't feel like gets discussed very often and i don't know anything about it so i'm excited to find out what's going on there and uh check out swampflix.com in the meantime i'm still posting reviews pretty much every day of the week right now because i have a lot of energy and that's where it's going yeah bye everybody bye